the talk that I'm giving tonight is from the advanced Montessori method to cosmic education. And really the main point of this is to try and get a grasp of how the Montessori approach evolved over the years for the elementary child, because it's really quite an extraordinary evolution. And the, in general, when you think of the Montessori approach, what's so marvellous about it, if you like, is that it wasn't born overnight in someone's head. I remember there was an Italian statesman who was a great fan of the Montessoris, and I believe also a personal friend, who said the Montessori method did not start in that first children's house, in that first Casa dei Bambini in Rome, Right? It was that first Casa dei Bambini that led to the Montessori approach. But of course, it was not just the first Casa dei Bambini. Yes, it was the one that started, if you like. But then it took decades, really, um, for the Montessori approach to reach the point where we're, at, where we're at now. And I think that sometimes I think, I don't know if you agree with me, that some of the differences that you find between the different countries sometimes with the work that's going on in the name of Montessori, is that perhaps people stayed at a certain date in this evolution mm. of the Montessori approach. And that's particularly true of cosmic education because cosmic education in the end flowered, so to speak, so late. If you look at the books that Montessori has in print, they're mostly to do with the three to six-year-old, right? And you have to really search for cosmic education. You have to search for articles or talks or whatever in various publications. So it's not, not so accessible. And yet, it's really where we're at with our 6 to 12-year-olds. Okay, so that's why the talk's entitled From the Advanced Montessori Method to Cosmic Education. And since I have the feeling that you're a much more informed audience than this talk was originally aimed for, which is a bit embarrassing, really, I'm going to start by asking you for some information. Because when it comes to thinking of the evolution of the Montessori approach, there's a kind of ordering that we can use using dates. Now, it's not that I'm a great fan of dates for the sake of dates, but sometimes dates help us to order things in our minds. So, of course, I can start by asking you, so what date, what year do you have in mind for the first children's house or the inauguration of the first children's house, Casa dei Bambini in Rome? What date do you have in mind? Yes. 1907. 1907, exactly. OK, so that's that first one that that Italian statesman said. It's not that the Montessori method gave birth to that children's house, it's the children's house that gave birth to this approach that, however, continued to evolve and to develop. Okay, and then another great landmark date is when the, what we know in the English language as the Montessori method was published. Of course, it wasn't published with that title in Italian, and Italian had a much more complicated title. Shall we hear it in Italian from Monica, what the title of the Montessori method was when it was first published in Italy? Il metodo cos'era? Della pedagogia scientifica applicato all'educazione infantile nella casa dei bambini. Ok. So. <laughs> right. First of all, there's two things to note about that. First of all, you never hear the word Montessori in the title. Did you hear the word Montessori in the Italian title? No, you don't hear the word Montessori at all. She didn't put her own name in that. 
Secondly, maybe you can understand why the people who published in the English language didn't like the title, because it's very long, and they wanted something short and snappy, didn't they? So, they, so it was for the English language that this title, the Montessori Method, was invented, but it's not that Montessori herself ever used that. And it's so true that she did not use that, that when she, with the, whatever it was, the fifth edition of that book that was brought out in 1948, she decided the title and she called it The Discovery of the Child, right? So when she had a chance to impose the title in the English language, she didn't use the Montessori method at all, but um, The Discovery of the Child. Now, The Discovery of the Child, we think of 1948, that's quite late, but when did the Montessori method, the Montessori method, what we know in English as the Montessori method, when was it published? What's the date for that? The 1907 is the date we associate with the first children's house, but what about this first book that Montessori writes about what happened with the children? Because she wrote other, something else as well. She wrote other stuff as well, but that was really to do with, Mont with this you know, approach with the children or discovering the child. What date? Well, it's, it comes very quickly after the first children's house, actually. It's 1909, Okay. So that's the first publication of what we know in Italian, what you just heard, and in English as the Montessori method. It, so, it came out so quickly that Montessori actually felt that she had to explain. Perhaps she felt, sometimes I feel I have to say perhaps maybe, because I'm speculating maybe a little bit. But anyway, she says that um, it seems like a short time after with her work with the children in San Lorenzo, but that actually for two years before that, She'd worked, she said she gave all of herself and worked night and day with the children, you know, that she found that were kind of abandoned children, um, abandoned, you know, she found in psychiatric, I suppose what we think of as psychiatric clinics now and all the rest of it. But children, back in those days, which were not politically correct days, they were politically incorrect days, right, that she called my little idiots, which sounds dreadful now, but which was not considered dreadful at the time. But anyway, what would we say now? Special needs children, maybe, or children who require special education? So she'd worked for two years with those children, she said, night and day. And, of course, she said that, um, in the end, the consequences of her work were due not only to her own work, but also to the work of her predecessors, who were Itar and Segan. Okay, so, and who, by the way, interestingly enough, were doctors. They were doctors like her. They weren't trained as educators, they were trained as doctors. Itar is famous because he worked with the, um, the so-called savage of Aviron, right? And she talks about him, doesn't she? And, and his name is actually Victor. And uh, Itar, so, and, and Sagan was a pupil of Itar, and he... And Montessori actually credits Sagan with some of the materials. That she started with Sagan materials and she translated his book because he wrote in French and she translated his book by hand. Okay, so, um, so, it could, so let's say it could come out so quickly because the work wasn't just the work she did in San Lorenzo. It was based on work that she'd done herself prior to that and also on all the work that Sagan and Itar had done before her. Okay, um, 1909 was a really interesting year for Montessori because it's also the year that she did her first training course and this was in Villa Montesca. It's in, uh, well, all those early years were obviously in Italy. That was Città di Castello in Umbria where we actually had the first ESF. Have you heard of the Educateurs Sans Frontières? 
this AMI initiative that's been going for a while, and that was the first, the first assembly was held there. It's where Montessori held her first training course, and it's also where she wrote that book, was there also. Um, and the um, Villa Montesca actually belonged to uh, a couple called Franchetti's. He was a baron, and he was married to an American woman called Alice Halgarten, and they put her up so that she would just, they insisted that she write this book, so it wouldn't, what she had discovered wouldn't be lost, but would be set down in print for everyone. Okay, so there we are, that's for Children's House, of course. And then, what is the date for the publication of what we know in English as the Advanced Montessori Method, which obviously wasn't called the Advanced Montessori Method in Italian, but of course it's called that in English because if you have the Montessori method, now we have to have the advanced Montessori method. So if the Montessori method was for the children of three to six, the advanced Montessori method was for the children, well, we think six to 12, but what it actually says here at the beginning is children of seven to 11, okay? Which means that back then, children in children's house were staying till the age of seven and elementary, I guess, finished at 11 and so very interesting. Also, the dates change if you look at the different years. Anyway, what was the date of publication of this book? Oh, that's a bit harder, isn't it? <laughs> what was the date of publication of this one? Not many people know this one. No, it came quite quickly, 1916. So the advanced method comes out in 1909, but 1916, which is only, it's not many years later, is it? It's just seven years later. Uh, we get the advanced Montessori method. And that's quite interesting, too, how quickly that book comes. But as we know, children will get older. They do grow and develop and get older. And so then there's an urgency, really, to develop something that's for the older children as well. And what is the advanced Montessori method called in Italian, Monica? This is my Italian colleague, Monica, <laughs> Monica Salassa. Okay. But you again you didn't hear you did not hear the words Montessori method there. No? And you and there's nothing there's nothing to do with advanced Montessori method as a title, what we're hearing there, because autoeducazione, which is if I were to pick out one word, it would be l'autoeducazione, actually means, well, literally, you can tell what it means, auto-education, which means self-education. It means the children educate themselves. It's the children who are educating themselves, right? Which, so, and of course, the advanced Montessori method, that sounds very, very different as the title. But the interesting thing is, it comes out so quickly, right? Now, we have um, something that always struck me, so I'm going to be bouncing back and forth, mm, but you can handle that because you're all experienced people and knowledgeable. So, um, what, what really struck me was I read Montessori talking about um, the, her very first experiences with those San Lorenzo children in Rome, you know, the one that we associate with the date 1907, and you know that she wasn't there all the time. I mean, she was supervising, but she wasn't there with those children every day, day in, day in, day out. She went in regularly 
But the, the one who was there all the time with the children was somebody, well, you hear different things about who that person was. Maybe she was all of those things. Some, some sources say the porter's daughter. Some sources say the seamstress. Some sources say that she had trained to become a teacher but never actually worked as a teacher because back then you could do a kind of high school that prepared you to become an elementary school teacher. Anyway, maybe she was all of those things. But anyway, the children were left with this particular person. And Montessori was very lucky because whatever she said to this lady, apparently the lady did it. <laughs> and actually carried out her instructions and <coughs> tried to teach in her own right. She simply did whatever Montessori asked. And um, what Montessori... I hope you don't mind me saying Montessori. I mean, I should be saying Dr. Montessori. You do realise that. But I'm just going to say Montessori for short. It's not to be disrespectful. I feel very respectful. Anyway, so her instructions were that the children should be happy. Don't you think that's a marvellous instruction to give? I thought that was absolutely wonderful. That the children should be happy. And so and that means that from the beginning, I think if you say the children should be happy, it means from the beginning you have to observe the children. Are they happy or aren't they happy? You know? What are the conditions then that permit the children to be happy or not happy? Um, I mean, it's, it's such a simple kind of instruction, but it can obviously lead to great things. And it's clear that when it came to the advanced Montessori method, the so-called advanced Montessori method, that again, Montessori's concern was to help the children. Because those children were going to be moving into elementary schools, right? And... And Montessori would know perfectly well what it is that you have to study in Montessori schools and what could be done to help them. Well, first of all, they've been helped. If they were children who'd been to a Casa de Bambini, they were already helped enormously because they would have already come to elementary writing and reading, wouldn't they? And having taken the first steps in arithmetic and then the Casa de Bambini also evolves over the years. It's not just the elementary that evolves over the years because the Casa dei Bambini does too, so that in the end Montessori could say these children could read and write and um, do uh, math, and the amount of math that they, you know, that they could actually do seemed to increase more and more the more the, the, more the Montessoris and her, the people around her come to know the children, observe the children, realise what the children are capable of. It seems that they were capable of more and more and more as a younger and younger age. So there's a great evolution also when it comes to the Casa dei Bambini. Um, but anyway, it's clear that she wants to help these older children. And these older children, what they were obviously going to be doing in elementary schools was exactly the subject that we find indicated in the advanced Montessori method. This is an old edition. It's a very old edition. It's a Kalakshetra edition that goes back to way back when. Um, but anyway, if, you, if we look at the table of contents, these were obviously the subjects that, we were being, that were being taught in the schools at that time, which means we've entered compulsory education. The big problem with elementary is that we're in the era now of, of uh, compulsory education. So what, what do you think? that any country is still putting the emphasis on when it comes to the years 6 to 12 or even 7 to 11, whatever, what are the subject areas that you get being emphasised? What are they? Language and, language and math. It's always language and math. So when you look at the contents here, we have language indicated in two sections as grammar and reading. And then we have arithmetic. 
Well, math, when you think of math, I mean, elementary mathematics is really made up of three branches, isn't it? Arithmetic, geometry, and algebra. So we find arithmetic here, we find geometry here, we find drawing, and we find music. And that's it, okay? So in the when you think, when you look at what we have in the advanced method, this is the book that we're still using today, right? Um, it's really those classic subjects for an elementary school. Or primary school is what people say these days, isn't it? So it's really language, math, but math understood as geometry as well as arithmetic, right? Drawing and music. And just incidentally, this is still the best source, the e most easily accessible, best source for music that you will find in print. You know, it's, the music section here is very well um, elaborated and it's very accessible. This book's very accessible. So, um, but anyway, it's very limited. If you think this is not cosmic education, is it? This is far from cosmic education. And yet, there are brilliant, if you like, aids that are here, that you can find here, that help the children in their kind of elementary work, if you like. So, um, just as the those first instructions that the children should be happy, and you think of all that that led to for the children of three to six, the Casa dei Bambini children, it's amazing what this advanced method eventually becomes, right? But it starts off just as taking whatever the school subjects would be and seeing how they can be offered to the children in a way that's meaningful. And what does that mean in a way that's meaningful from a Montessori point of view? It means from a developmental point of view. Because what we offer the children is meant to help them in their development. So from being happy, right, in the end what we think of is development. Is this helping their development? And when you're a creature in development, the greatest happiness is to actually develop. All right? Because that is your task. Right? It's that process of development, it's that process of becoming. And if, if that's what you're actually managing to do, that's what's going to make you happy. And it's when you're frustrated in that, if you meet obstacles of any kind, that you're going to get frustrated and, and defensive and that you know, you're going to sort of deviate away, if you like, from the path of normal development. And, um, and then all kinds of problems, obviously, are going to arise. Now, so the interesting, so, I've, so now I've reached the point where my talk starts. Is that okay? <laughs> Which is the advanced Montessori method and what we find actually there. And I'm not trying to minimise because, as I've said, it's a book that we still use today, really mainly for the language, because there are things that you can find here for language for elementary children that you won't find elsewhere. And anybody who's really seriously interested in music could look there. As well, and then of course the rest is very interesting too. But when it comes to arithmetic and geometry, and actually even language, of course there are other developments that take place. But before I come on to those other developments that we find evidence for in print from the 1930s on, I just want to say that Mario Montessori. This was in a lecture he gave in Bergamo. Says. That the teachers, however, were really asking Montessori to also do something about geography and biology and history, right? 
So now I'm not sure at this point. Were they asking that because they thought that would be interesting for the children? Or were they asking that perhaps because the national curriculum maybe in the meantime also required some geography and some biology and some history? And Mario says that Montessori resisted because she said, what we do, whatever we offer, is for the children's development. If we offer these, the language and the math, understood as arithmetic and geometry, but also music and art, as a means for the children to develop, and the children are developing themselves, they themselves, that was her answer, it's actually amazing, they themselves can explore and learn, auto-educazione, self-education, you know, teach themselves geography and biology and history, right? Because... If they're developing, right, and they're developing themselves, they have the strength, you know, to be able to do that with self-motivation and with their own sort of strength, right? And so she, she resisted for a long time, and we know that that obviously changed eventually. But anyway, how does this, the, the language that we find here and the arithmetic and the geometry, how does that evolve? So we have a lot here, a lot that's still relevant, materials that we're still using. But Montessori brings out new publications, doesn't she, in the 1930s. And at this point, you associate those years with Spain, right? And so those the two publications come out in Spain, and that's psychoarithmetic, psychogeometry. And then there's the manuscript, which never got published in Spain, but has been published now in Italian, very recently, psychogrammar. So that means the very same subjects that we find in the advanced method. And now we have a book dedicated to each one, right? Because now arithmetic has become psychoarithmetic. Geometry has become psychogeometry. And language, the first section of which here was in any case identified as grammar, has become psychogrammar. And Anne-Marie Macaroni, whom we associate, right, was a great student and collaborator of Montessori's, and whom we associate with um, the development of Montessori music and the materials and so on, she also publishes under the title Psychomusic. So all the big subject areas that we find in the advanced Montessori method by the 30s are being known by the same names but with psycho in front. Okay, which is quite dramatic, this psycho. I mean, I did make this awful, awful joke, I have to say, in Mexico about, you know, when I, if you think of just psycho, you think of the movie, but you're not supposed to think of that movie. It's sad that that movie ever came out, right? Um, because the psycho here is telling us something that is not telling us what Mon that Montessori changed her mind or anything. It's telling us that she wants everyone to know that... At the centre of it all, you have the child. Now, it's clear that for her, the child would have been at the centre anyway, all along. But, but by publishing under the title with Psycho coming in front of the names of these subject areas, it's like saying to the rest of the world, it's really important that you don't think of these subjects for their own sake, but you think of these subjects in relation to the child. And it means in relation to the child of particular ages, right? So um, there's a huge difference then to put the child at the centre. It means, make no mistake, never put the subject at the centre. Never put the national curriculum 
at the center. Everything that we do from a Montessori point of view is to, meant to help the children to develop. So when we offer subject areas, it means that we're offering means of opp opportunities for the children to be active and to be active and to work in a constructive way, which means for their own development. Hmm. So they're, if you like, teaching themselves. Right. But it also means something else. It means that you can take a subject apart into different aspects and offer the different aspects at different ages. Okay? So if you take geometry, for example, apart, and you think, what is suitable for a young child? What is suitable for the older child? What is suitable for the adolescent? So let me just quickly, that means that you're thinking about the planes of development, and that's what you're seeing represented up here on the wall, right? So you can see that we have the first plane of development that goes from birth to around the age of six, and Montessori identifies that as infancy, okay? And it's subdivided into two parts. So you have birth to three, and then you have the years three to six. So if the whole thing constitutes a single plane of development, it means that in some general sense, the work of development that's going on at that time is the same. But if it's divided into two subplanes, at the same time, there's something different about the development that's going on in the two different subplanes. Um, right. And, but anyway, so I'm thinking of the years three to six. The years three to six are the ones that we associate with children's house. The years three to six are not when the basic acquisitions are made, what makes the child, if you like, typically a member of the human species. Typically, we walk on two feet, right? Do things with our hands and speak. But so these basic acquisitions, right, of the coordination of movement that means that you can move around on your own two feet and everything, none of these things is the child born with, okay? The child has to work to develop those um, powers in himself, and same thing with language and all the rest. So all those basic acquisitions are made in the first years, right? But the years three to six are still... The children are working at the same kind of work, but it's just more like perfecting those acquisitions. So so time that Montessori, um, with years three to six, she refers to them as constructive perfectionment. Constructive, so it's developmental, but perfectionment means it's a perfecting of what the child's already acquired in those earlier years. And sometimes people think of it as refinement. There's a refinement or a perfecting of language that's going on, a perfecting of coordination of movement um, and so on, a refinement, if you like, of the senses or an education of the senses. Okay, but anyway, so I'm thinking of those years three to six because of the Casa dei Bambini, and then we have that older child, so we've got childhood there, the years six to 12, and then we have adolescence, the years 12 to 18. And back in Montessori's day, the legal age, the coming of age so that you legally become an adult and a member of society in your own right would have been around the age of 21 it was 21 back then but now of course it's 18 so at the end of adolescence you're actually responsible for yourself and your parents are no longer responsible for you but you're responsible for yourself so the idea then of, um, of something you know like psychodrometry or psychoarithmetic is that you can actually take it apart 
right? And you can offer, because it has to be a means of development, right? And so you can offer what's suitable to the little child, so I'm thinking of the three to six-year-old, or, or you can offer the certain aspects to the six to 12-year-old, and you can offer yet other aspects to the 12 to 18-year-old. And um, just as illustrate that then, we can think, well, if you're thinking of a three to six-year-old, but when you think of the sensitivities, which are always to do with movement, the senses, language, order. So I'll just focus on those four, okay? And then people have others as well, okay? And Montessori has others too, but I'll just mention those. Um, is there, what can we offer in the way of geometry? There's not geometry as such, but that, that's right for the child of that age. So it has to be for the senses, doesn't it? has to be for the senses, has to involve movement, and has to have the language aspect as well. And so we find materials that you and I, if we didn't know anything about Montessori and walked into the children's house, we'd say, oh, that's geometry. Oh, look, I can see those figures. I can see those shapes. That's geometry, right? But where do you actually find it? You find it under sensorial, okay? So it's for education of the senses. So the cabinet whatever you call it, the geometric cabinet, the geometry cabinet. I think we should call it the cabinet of shapes. But anyway, what does Montessori call it? That's the easiest thing. She calls them, I'm not going to call on Monica this time, I'm going to do it myself because it's short, incastri piani, and that's just plain insets. That's what she calls them, plain insets, which means flat insets, plain in the sense of flat, right? Flat insets means they're two-dimensional shapes, right? That's why they're flat. They haven't got that third dimension. They're um, these uh, flat insets. So easy, you know, using those. But it's really interesting, actually, to compare the expressions that Montessori uses in Italian and the ones that we use in English. I can't speak for the Dutch. I have no idea what you're saying in the Dutch. That would be a whole other interesting thing to explore, actually. But anyway, so, so the, the, there is geometry in children's house, but it's what we can think of as hidden geometry. It's not geometry as geometry, because no children's house teacher or director dreams of thinking that, you know, the material with the material she's actually offering the children geometry. But actually, it's a hidden geometry. It's an indirect preparation for geometry, Right. The children, however, are interested in working with that material, which could be the cabinet or the constructive triangles or, or the little solids. Um, they're interested in it because they're interested in shapes, right? They're interested in seeing shapes, they're interested in feeling shapes, tracing shapes, uh, getting the names for shapes. There's the word hunger at that age, right? Um, so there you are, you have a hidden geometry, but, but there's a preparation for geometry, there's no question. There's, um, it, it provides the most incredible foundation for what then, in elementary, we actually do think of as geometry. And then how does she talk about the geometry in, during the years of childhood then, the years 6 to 12 or elementary? She talks about it as really discovery that it should be the way we should work with it, and I'm not saying that we always do, but as much as possible what we should do is ensure that the children are making their discoveries. Okay? So the materials are there for the children. We have... We can still have the cabinet in elementary, by the way. Um, we have our own large solids rather than the little solids. And there's... 
and there are at least four, there are four out of the six boxes of constructive triangles that authentically belong to elementary. So you can have six boxes in children's house, but four of those boxes have to be in elementary. Maria Montessori actually wrote an article called Constructive Triangles in Elementary School. It's a mistake to think that we shouldn't have that material in elementary because we really, really should. But what's so marvellous is that both um, Maria Montessori and Mario Montessori talk about how it was the children who made the most extraordinary discoveries. So really, the best way of thinking about geometry in elementary is to think of it as, a, as, the, as the age or the plane, if you like, plane, uh, plane of development, you know what I mean, stage of development, phase of development, whatever, for discovery. And the children can make their own discoveries. They don't need to be taught. Some things they need to learn from others. What's a very obvious thing that we need to learn from others, right? It's language, isn't it? So when you have certain experiences, you need the language to be able to communicate, to be able to think about things in a very clear and concise way, and to be able to communicate to others and so on. So the language will always be needed there. But the material permits the children to make the most extraordinary discoveries. And Montessori and Mario, they both give examples like this. For example, so I don't know how well you know that material or if we should maybe get it or even if I should spend this much time on it. But anyway, <laughs> that an equilateral triangle built on the height of another equilateral triangle, can you imagine that, yeah. right, is equal to three-fourths. So if I were to call, so you've got an equilateral triangle like this. Here's the height. Now you build an equilateral triangle on the height and it's three-fourths of the first one, okay? So here's your big equilateral triangle. Mario calls that T1. Now build on the height of it, okay? So now the side of the next one, the second one, is going to be equal to the height of the first one. And that second one is equal to three-fourths of the first. And the children work that out for themselves with the constructive triangles. Now we... In Bergamo, we actually show the students that. But what's so marvellous is that it wasn't the teachers who ever showed that to the children. It was the children who showed it to the teachers. And the teachers didn't know anything about it. They never known of a relationship like that. And they even consulted with people, apparently, who were working at university. Did they know this is what the children had discovered? And, and they said, university people said they didn't know. They couldn't find it in any geometry textbook. And, and, the, and the university people didn't know either. And that's, that's absolutely marvellous. I mean, usually you think if a child can discover something that's already known, but if they do it as their own discovery, instead of being told, they discover it for themselves. That's already fantastic. But most of the time, you know, it's known to humanity. Apparently this wasn't even known to humanity because nobody seemed to know. And then other, other examples were um, that... A square, a square that's built on the diagonal, a square that's built on the diagonal. So imagine a square now with its diagonal, that's the first square. And now build a square, this is the second square, that's built on the diagonal, so its side is equal to the diagonal. It's twice the area of the first one, okay? And we, you, if you know the material, then you know exactly how 
that works, right? And the material there is not the material of the constructive triangles, but it's the material of the divided squares that you see that, okay? But again, it wasn't the teachers who showed it to the children. It was never a lesson. That material is for exploration. It's for exploration and discovery. And what you have to do is to get the children started on it, do little something to get them going just enough to motivate them, and then if they're losing interest and you know there are still discoveries to be made, you can give them another little something that will, so you just offer enough, but no more than enough, so that the children keep exploring. And if they keep exploring, the material is such that they will make discoveries, all right? And that one about the square, the relationship between those two squares is absolutely marvelous because it connects with the theorem of Pythagoras, okay? Which, you know, theorem of Pythagoras has everything to do with squares is that the squares built on the legs of the right angle triangle together are equivalent to the square built on the hypotenuse, actually. And so it does actually connect with that. So, so she just gives these examples of things that the children have discovered. So I think that as elementary teachers, we really, really have to, in a way, keep reminding ourselves, because it's so easy to teach, right? But it's not interesting to be taught, you say. It's much more interesting to find out for yourself and to discover for yourself, right? And that's what we really want for those elementary children. So Montessori says that those children can keep discovering relationships, relationships which we often call theorems. But as I say, we have a theorem like about the equilateral triangles, but it's not even to be found in the geometry book. So there are theorems that are to be found in the books and there are also theorems that are not found in the books that the children can discover. Another example that Montessori gives is for, um, she gives various examples for arithmetic. So you want the same thing for arithmetic, the material, having the material there, providing that prepared environment and ensuring the materials are there, complete, attractive, on display, Right? So when the children can see them, it's under their eyes. So it's like a voice. The material sends out a voice which says, work with me. Look how great I am. Just take me and work with me. Right? But unless the material is on display, they're not getting that message. So they need that message all the time. Um, but for arithmetic, so this is where you get your psychoarithmetic. The children worked out how to extract square root. Don't ask me how they did this. <coughs> how to ex but it's a method that we use, that we start with. How to extract a square root, bringing down one hierarchy at a time. So, like, bringing down one figure. In the writing, it means bringing down one figure at a time. So you have the number that you've got, and you're trying to work out what the side of the square, the largest square that's contained in that number, we have the materials to do that, so the children have the materials. The abstract method, if you look in the books, if you can even find books that tell you how to extract square root these days, because these days people just press a button on a calculator, don't they? But once upon a time, people did learn how to extract square root. Um, but it's, it wasn't done... The, the children discovered their own way of doing it. You know? And, and it was the same thing. It was showed to professors and people, and the professors couldn't figure out how the children could have discovered something like that. Um, but anyway, it's the method that we use on our courses. So what's amazing is how much we use on our courses. There were things actually discovered by the children. So what we're doing is we first show the method that the children discovered, and then we show, right, but we're not 
we never give them the abstraction, you understand? We're not giving the elementary children the abstraction because they've got to reach abstraction through their own work, i.e. they have to reach a formula or a rule or a procedure that leads you to just work with pen and paper or pencil and paper. The children <coughs> have to reach that by themselves, otherwise they won't understand, okay? But anyway, so we show them a method of working with the material that then leads them, they could end up working being able to do work abstractly using the first method, the one that was discovered by the children, or we can show them another way of working with the material that could lead them to then doing it abstractly, um, pencil and paper, just pencil and paper, abandon the material that corresponds to what you can still find in the books if you find the right books, you can still find it. And so these are just a few examples. You can find more examples. But what's so amazing is that... Um, the children are able to discover so much, right, if the conditions are right. And the conditions are right. Well, first of all, what Montessori says is, is what, showing you what the children are capable of. And the children are capable of so much more than we ever imagine. We constantly underestimate children. And Montessori says she herself underestimated the children, right? So often she devised, this is also to be found in the literature, she would devise materials which would be offered to the elementary children and which would end up in children's house. And that's how so much of the math ended up in children's house. And also things that have to do with other subject areas as well ended up in children's house. And the conditions there, actually, that's very interesting. For those of you who are still interested in experimenting and taking an experimental approach, what permitted Montessori to do that? devise materials and then find the right age for the working with those materials is because in this school that she had in Laren, so now we're in Holland rather than Italy or Spain, um, she had her own school and her own school, and I checked this out with Renilda Montessori, in this school there were these interconnecting, it's a little bit like, you know you're an art gallery and you have interconnecting salons Right? So these environments, the 3 to 6, the 6 to 9, and the 9 to 12, were all connected with open doors. Okay? Open doors. And open doors means physically, but also psychologically. All right? So the doors would actually be open, and psychologically no barriers for the children to be able to uh, circulate freely from one environment to another. So when she presented things to older children, younger children could be present. And she could observe... The responses of the older children, the responses of the younger children. And if the old, older children were lukewarm and the little children were enthusiastic, then it ended up they would go off with it, you know, like the treasure that went off into their room rather than remaining with the elementary children. That's true of the golden bead material, the decimal system material. It was originally devised for the elementary children and it ended up being transferred. Of course, we also have the golden bead material because we use it for squaring and square root. But, but, but the, you know, working with the decimal system, that's done, we know, in children's house. It was also true of... Other, of materials for other subject areas that I don't want to talk about yet because I haven't got there yet. Um, I'm still focusing on this psychoarithmetic, you know, psychogeometry, uh, and then there's psychogrammar as well. Okay, so both for arithmetic and for, for geometry, which Montessori says are actually the children's favourite subjects. If you want to look at it in the point of view of subject areas, she says these are their favourite subject areas. Why is that? Is it because of the exactness? Is it because of the possibility of so much to discover 
It's not just exploring and finding out. It's literally discovering. Montessori says often materials that they would devise with one kind of purpose in mind, and then the children would discover something that had nothing to do with the purpose that they originally had in mind when devising the material. And, I mean, well, I can give you some modest examples. So let's, if you know the material well, you can imagine this as well. <coughs> think of the, in the drawer in the, in the geometry cabinet, think of the drawer that has the polygons with more than four sides, right? Now, you know they're regular polygons. We may not call them that, but they're actually regular polygons. What is a reg Well, first of all, what's a polygon? It's a straight-sided figure as opposed to a curvy figure, right, like a circle, a circle is not a polygon, but a triangle is a polygon, a square is a polygon, <coughs> a pentagon is a polygon, and so on. So those polygons that go from the pentagon to the decagon that we have in that drawer, they're regular. They're regular polygons. And what does regular mean? Regular means they have equal, those, those particular polygons have equal sides and equal angles. So they're both equiangular and equilateral. You take those, right? You can line them up, but you can also take the triangle and the square because triangle, equilateral triangle and square, they're also regular polygons, right? I think this is not exactly what I was saying in Mexico City, by the way. <laughs> okay, well, so you line them all up and then take the divided circle, starting with a circle that's divided into thirds, right? Take the circle that's divided into thirds, right up to the circle that's divided into ten-tenths. Take a sector of each of those circles and put it next to the angle, an angle of one of those regular polygons, and what will you always get? Okay, so what is an angle of an equilateral triangle? Do you know what that angle is? Either because you're teaching elementary or because you remember from school. It's 60 degrees. Okay, then think of the sector of the circle that's been divided into three equal parts. We use them for fractions mostly, but we have to use them for geometry as well. What is the angle at the center? It's 360 degrees is the whole angle divided by three. What's 360 degrees divided by three? 120. What is 60 plus 120? 180. You put them together and you see this straight angle, right? That's 180 degrees. Now you have the square. What's the angle of a square? Everybody knows the angle of a square. It's a right angle. It's 90 degrees. Put next to it the sector that's, that's a fourth of that divided circle. Well, 360 divided by 4 is what? 90. So you're putting 90 together with 90. What do you see? A straight angle. And so it goes on right up to the, the regular decagon, which has an angle. What's the angle of the regular decagon? Well, it's 180 minus whatever the 360 divided by 10 is, right? So 360 divided by 10 is 36, right? So what's 180 minus 36? 144, right? That sounds right. 144 plus 36 equals 180 degrees. Now, nobody would ever show that to the children. But you know what? If the children have worked with the materials and they work and work with the materials, they're totally capable of discovering something like that. And it means that you can go from one material to another material, put them together and discover something really, really interesting. And that's something that has to go on in elementary. Because whereas in children's house, each material is kind of very much unto itself and sometimes it's even color-coded and so on. In elementary, you're constantly helping yourself to materials that are coming from different places. And we're very free about, you know, and we can do it because 
the way the material has been made, and this is something brilliant about the material, is that it's... Uh, it's compatible. It's always compatible. You can always do things with it. You can put it together, you know, Me because of the measurements. That means the sizes, but it's certain particular measurements that are used that permits you to constantly make relationships and find relationships. And some of those relationships are actually called theorems, and it means the children can discover them for themselves. Okay, I've talked an awful lot about that, and I really should stop now. But we're still at the level of the same subject areas that are found in the advanced method. Except Montessori is now making it very clear that first of all, it's the child that's at the centre, right? And that means the child's, the, the development of the child. And sometimes she talks about it also, you know, that we, what we have to constantly think of is the human personality. It's the human personality that's at the centre of the work and should be at the centre of education. But also with the psycho, she's saying... But you can actually analyse a subject, take it apart and offer what's of interest to the different ages because the child at different ages or the individual that's developing has a different psychology at the different ages, has different interests, different sensitivities, different needs. And we can offer, right, this aspect of geometry to this age, this other aspect of geometry to this other age and this other aspect of geometry to this other age. For adolescents, she actually, so huge thing on discovery and the discovery of theorems and the children can actually express them if they have the language to do it. And then for adolescents, she says, what's um, really important there, she says, is a systematic study of geometry. But that's only suitable for the older individual, for the adolescent. Um, so, so we don't have to think of the geometry for elementary as a systematic study. No. I mean, you know, the children are free to follow their interests. That's the idea. Okay, but sometimes, sometimes it's also true that we have to say, hmm, maybe before doing that, maybe you would like to do this, and then you can do that. You know, just sometimes that's a wise thing. As regards the systematic study of geometry for the years of adolescence, she, she does revise that a little bit later on. Because in, it's in psychogeometry that she's saying, oh, the systematic study should be left to the years of adolescence. But if you look at later writings still, then you find her saying, mm, but the first years of adolescence, maybe, you know, we're not going to be very emphatic about, maybe this should be left very free for other kinds of work, okay? Which I can talk about when I come on to do a postscript on adolescence. So she kind of revises it a little bit. She never revises what we have in relation to um, the children's house or the elementary, but she revises a little bit that maybe the first years of adolescence, the adolescents can use for other things rather than systematic study. All right? Um, and in that connection, it's also important to notice that as the method evolves, as the children end up doing more and more, what we would think of as advanced work, right? Or work that's being done at a younger and younger age, where she says the children show powers that adults with their rigid minds are actually blocked off from, and that the children can do stuff in algebra that her, you know, adult students were having trouble with, and there was this eight-year-old who was watching her. This was working with the cube, and that, but treating it as an algebraic cube. You know, the one that you know is a as the sensorial, you know, for sensorial work, the cube of the binomial and trinomial, but, you know, in elementary, that becomes algebraic, you know, so you treat it as an algebraic cube. And um, 
and she's trying to show these adult students, right? And there's this eight-year-old who sort of stays and watches for half an hour and then uh, wants to go off with it or play with it or something. And she says, well, you don't understand. It's really interesting. She's very free sometimes, you know. Would, would everybody say, would everybody feel that they could say and be totally Montessori and say, you, you don't understand that to a, an eight-year-old? But anyway, um, so she does it without any problems. And he says, oh, but I do understand. And then he explains everything, how the, the red cube or whatever it is, is the A cubed, and this other one is A squared B, etc., etc. And, you know, and, and, well, her breath is taken away by that. And so she's saying that, you know, really what it means is that when these children have opportunities to see something in a concrete way, then they show amazing abilities, right? That, she says, adults actually sometimes struggle with. But she says, you have to get the right age. You have to do it at the right age. And I think that it's a problem that we still have now. That if we, as adults, try to program too much, right? If we're trying to say, oh no, that this, we're going to offer this at this age rather than this age. And that's very tempting if you're involved in, with a national curriculum, you know? You're not going to see that liberation of energy. You're not going to see that passion and all that maximum effort that the children can put in. And that's because it's, coming, it's being organised and controlled by the adult, right? And when it's organised and controlled by the adult, and it's not at the children's initiative, then it's not going to release those energies. Then it becomes an imposed work, right? But if you, if you really pay attention, and, you know, even if you're busy teaching, you should keep reading Montessori, you should keep rereading her. So you get inspired all over again, right? What does she put the emphasis on? Always on the children's interest. Or on spontaneous, okay? She calls the advanced method, right? Even for us in English, the first volume is called spontaneous activity in education. Spontaneous means it's coming from the children. It's not coming from the adult. It's coming from the children, right? And if it's coming from the children, there's that interest and the passion, and there's the interest... It can be an individual interest, but so often it's the interest of the age, okay? And if we can get those ages right, because the age goes with a certain psychology, it goes with certain sensitivities, then we have to see the, the children, right? The children's responses, the happiness of the children, the energy that goes into it. I want to come back to the happiness. I don't want to forget that because I started with happiness, didn't I? Right? But there's that passion and that work and there's... Well, you know, I mean, if we're just being forced to do certain things, then we put in a minimum effort. We don't put in a maximum effort. So you're not going to see it. And there's another thing that we have to be very careful about if we're going to see these psychological responses. It's very tempting when a child has understood something to say, OK, move on. All right, we've got a, maybe a national curriculum that we've got to make sure that the child has to take a test or whatever. <laughs> so that if the child's understood... It's time to move on to something. And sometimes in observations, you know, you'll actually hear a teacher saying, you can put that away now, you know that. Why are you working with that? Right? We're not supposed to do that. Because what's also been observed is that when children understand, they want to keep working at something. And they've got to be free to be able to keep working at it until they somehow, in some way, know that they've had enough. In the same way that if you've got a normal appetite... 
instead of the abnormal appetites that we've developed in our modern era. If you have a normal appetite, you know when to stop eating, right? But nobody else can tell you when to stop eating. The Montessori's always use food as an analogy, right? And, you know, nobody can eat your food for you. Nobody can tell you when you're hungry for this, that, or the other. Nobody can tell you when you've had enough to eat. We each have to know, we each know that for ourselves. And we don't know why. You know, we don't always know why. Why am I full now? Why aren't I full eating a little bit more or eating a little bit less? Well, no, you, you don't even know for yourself, but you just know. Okay? And it's the same thing with, with the work. But what has been observed is that when children understand, they want to keep working at it. But in a traditional school, is it not true? As soon as somebody's understood something, you're supposed to move on to something else, right? But we're supposed to have, give the children the freedom that they can mature, whatever it is, some mysterious process going on inside, so that they leave when they're happy to leave. It's supposed to be part of the freedom that's given to children. Okay, so anyway, what else is going on in the 1930s? We're, back in the, we're still back in the 1930s. What else is going on in the 1930s? Well... Montessori says in To Educate the Human Potential that the cornerstone for, ed for cosmic education, which is what we want to get to, cosmic education, the cornerstone was laid in 1935 in London. Okay, it's right there in To Educate the Human Potential. And To Educate the Human Potential is one of the books that you absolutely have to know if you're interested in cosmic education. Okay, it comes out of the work in India. But she's saying that the cornerstone was laid in 1935. So from 1935 on, we're going to be able to find things of interest from the point of view of cosmic education. And one of, one of those, well, we have the publication Education and Peace, okay? And if you're interested in cosmic education, that's absolutely essential that you read. It's a series of talks that Montessori gives, right? And they all date to the 1930s, so all of them, so from early 1930s right through to late 1930s. And the 1930s, and you can understand why the book is called Education and Peace, because so many of the talks in there have to do with education and peace. And you can understand why Montessori's become so interested in that, because you have to put yourself back in the time of that decade, the 1930s, right? It's a time of, it's a terrible time in Europe, isn't it? It's um, the time of, it's a, there's a Great Depression. Well, of course, there's Great Depression in America as well. 1929, you get the stock market that crashes, right? And that leads to the Depression. And that Depression leads into the Second World War. And the fact that there's war looming on the horizon is very obvious during the 1930s. War actually breaks out in 1939, doesn't it? So you can understand why there's this emphasis for Montessori and for um, educating, really. It's educating for peace. And what kind of education do we need for peace? Because what she's saying is that, you know, uh, peace is not cessation of war, is it? It's not just the stopping of war. Because when war stops, you know, treaties can be made, but those treaties can lead to another war. That's what happened after the First World War. The treaty that was made after the First World War, a lot of people would say, actually, the conditions were such that it led to the Second World War. And for Montessori, it's only education and helping children from a very young age to, edu to educate themselves, to become as much themselves as it's possible to be, to fulfill as much of their, realise, actualise as much of their potential as possible, right? 
So that we really valorize, if you like, that's the expression she's using during the 1930s, valorize the human personality, right? Valorize the personality means constantly have to think of development and development. It's a constant enrichment and enhancement of the individual and of the personality, right? And that's the way that leads to peace. And that it's a, it's a great mistake to think that there's a conflict between the greatest possible, the optimal development of the individual on the one hand and the social development on the other hand. Because, you know, in the totalitarian, the t because we had totalitarian regimes back in the 1930s, didn't we? That it was almost as though the individual had to sacrifice themselves for social purposes. But what she's saying is that, she's saying that's a false dichotomy, really. Because the individual, in order to develop themselves as fully as possible, needs that social context, the social development, the social interactions, and so on. And a society is only as str strong as the individuals of, of which it's composed. Right, so, um, so if you want um, a science of peace, if you like, or if you want weapons of peace, you have to think of education and of optimal development, really. And having these strong individuals, if you like, um, that, you, that will emerge if you really mm, emphasise human potential. I mean, every title, you know, I say human potential, and of course she's written this book called To Educate the Human Potential. title of every single book that she gives herself, and not that the publishers get, is really kind of meaningful. Okay, so we have a lot in there that's important for cosmic education. Because cosmic education, which I'm going to be talking about right now, which is the... <laughs> so when you think of the planes of development, which I'm showing you up there, right? This is based on Montessori's chart. This isn't exactly Montessori's chart, but it's totally in spirit faithful to Montessori's chart. Um, you're thinking of planes of development, but if, if, if education is to be based on development, if what, whatever we offer is to be a means to development, if education is to be an aid to developing life, then whatever we offer for education relates to development. So from planes of development, we can pass to what we can think of as planes of education. Right? So for the, the plane of development is identified as childhood. But now we say the plane of education for the 6 to 12-year-old child is actually called cosmic education. So the plane of development, think childhood, 6 to 12, childhood. What education is being offered? Cosmic education, right? Uh, so cosmic education is for this older child, all right? I mean, I was once participated in a kind of cosmic education day, where the, the organisers had... I was there for cosmic education for the 6 to 12-year-old, thank God, right? But there was someone there who was talking about cosmic education for the 3 to 6-year-old, and someone else who was talking about cosmic education for the 12 to 18-year-old. But let's be very clear. Cosmic education is only for the 6 to 12-year-old. You can't do cosmic education with a 3 to 6-year-old. The three to six-year-old doesn't have those powers, right? All the abilities and human faculties and powers that are developed by the younger child, the older child uses in order to explore the world. 
in order to explore human society. That's what we think of. When we think of cosmic education, we're thinking of, of the child being able to cosmic. Cosmic obviously comes from cosmos. So it has to do with the universe. How can a three to six-year-old, anyway, let's, let's say a four-year-old, right? How can a four-year-old explore the universe? The four-year-old's got completely other, in, other interests, right? It's the older child with all the faculties that were developed by the younger child that can become interested in the universe. But those children first have to develop themselves and their human faculties before they can be, you know, throw the intelligence, as Montessori says, out to the world and be really interested in the world and the universe and the cosmos and all the rest of it, right? So, I mean, you know, and when you think of the sensitivities of the older child, those sensitivities fit with cosmic education, inevitably, right? Because the sensitivities are a hunger for knowledge, a hunger for knowledge, and therefore finding answers to questions such as how and why, all right? That's not the kind of questions that the little children ask. They're not all about what causes this, or how did this happen, or... I'll give you examples, uh, more examples in a minute, just to give you the idea, right? But you cannot explore the cosmos through movement and the senses. Can you? No, you can't. Can you explore the universe just using movement and the senses? Movement and the senses are your means of exploration of an immediate environment. Okay? And that's what the little child uses, the immediate environment in order to construct himself. And once he's developed himself sufficiently, he can then take an interest in a much vaster reality, which isn't the immediate environment. It's not that closed or limited environment. It's the open environment. And it can be huge. It can be vast, right? It can be to the furthest reaches of the cosmos, and you can move in time. So if you can imagine these children, there's a sensitivity for the use of the imagination at this time. So think of the imagination as a kind of space and time vehicle, right? That carries you to the furthest corners of space, right? And to long ago times. So, you know, because you you go back in time, you can go back in time to the beginning of the universe, you can go back in time to the beginning of life or when human beings first emerged or whatever. So cosmic education has everything to do with the psychology of the six to 12 year old, everything to do with the characteristics of the older child. And nothing to, the adolescents have a whole other work to do. It's just so crazy, you know. It's like fashion. At a certain point, I think cosmic education became fashionable. It sounds kind of, you know, good, doesn't it? Sort of cosmic <laughs> education or whatever. Um, but, but, I mean, you know, every, every plane of development has its own work, has its own, if you like, deve- developmental tasks, its own plane of education. It, and above all, we can also start to think its own kind of independence that has to be acquired. Because there's also becoming... Um, development's a process of becoming. Development is also a process of becoming independent. But independence, you can't acquire independence overnight. You acquire independence gradually. So there's a kind of independence that's suitable for the younger children. There's a kind of independence that's suitable for the older children, that the older children have to acquire. And there's a different kind of independence that has to be acquired by the adolescents. Right? So... Um, well, Camilo used to refer to for the younger child, he used to say physical independence. I mean, you know, see the four planes of development uh, article. 
that you that's been published again. Let me get that in. Oh, I've only got ten minutes left. Five minutes left. Wow, that's amazing. Four minutes. Fifteen minutes. Okay, I couldn't get all of that. Sorry. <laughs> fifteen minutes. So, okay, I can do that in fifteen minutes. I can finish in fifteen minutes, I'm sure. Anyway, so uh, physical independence, but it's often also known as functional independence. But it means that you can physically function in your environment. You can look after yourself, you can look after the environment, you develop your own powers as you're doing that, etc., etc. When you think, and um, we usually sum it up too with that, Kind of so like a Montessori slogan, the little child that said, help me to do it by myself. That's a plea for independence. It's also a plea to get off my back and give me space, right? So I can just <laughs> do it by myself. And in that way, I'll do what I'm required by nature to develop and to become independent, right? So what do we think of for the older child? It's really, it's part of that discovery and figuring things out for yourself. So we paraphrase it into, help me to think by myself. Okay, so the older child should be able to do for them. The older children should be able to do for themselves. What they really the challenge now is to be able to think for themselves, work things out for themselves, and that's why they have all those questions that have to do with how and why, but also when and where and all the rest of it. But the the biggies are how, why, and what for, right? And then there's also when, where, and getting a kind of context. Okay, everything to do with the psychology of that child. For the, for the adolescence, I'm obviously never going to get reach adolescence. That'll have to be for another time. Um, but for the adolescence, it's really economic independence. Now, it's not that they can become economically de- independent, actually, during those years, totally independent economically, but they can take the first steps, all right? And part of that is if you can earn money. Because if you can earn money, that shows that you can do something that's so valued that you can actually get money for it, okay? So you have to think of the beginning steps. And honestly, outside of Montessori, isn't it typical of adolescents that they want to be able to take on some kind of job, something that permits them to earn money? And then you get parents who say, no, you have to study, you have to focus on studying. You're not, no, no, don't earn any money. We've got money, you just focus on studying. But that's really boring for young (laughs) adolescents, isn't it? So the idea is really that if you give them that kind of freedom, they'll study better. It's not that if you stop doing what nature is driving them to do, that you're going to get a better result. You have to work with nature, support nature. That's what we should be doing as adults, right? And then they'll be studying better. It's not that earning money and having those kind of little jobs that permit you to earn money actually interferes. If anything, what's been shown is that you may be a better student as a result, right? Because you yourself... um, I mean, it's a natural drive in adolescence to actually start beginning to, you know, find a way to independence, sort of embark on that path, if you like, that leads to economic independence. All right, so a few words then about this uh, characteristics of human, uh, human, cosmic education. That sounds really funny, that. I'm, I'm thinking about hurrying, you see, in 15 minutes, so I'm going to start making more and more slips of the tongue. Human education, no, cosmic education. All right. Um, that fit entirely the characteristics of the age. Are we doing a flashing thing? Oh, let, let's just look at a few slides, though, because otherwise, why did I bring them? It's just gone. Mm. Right, let's have a look at this one. 
I was just talking a moment ago about the little children operate in the immediate environment. And the means of exploration of the immediate environment is the senses and movement. Okay? And so those are the means that the children use. And those are the, that's, those are the aspects that they actually perfect in themselves, is the coordination of movement and the senses, and, of course, language. So, anyway, so we have a, this picture that Montessori wanted in every children's house that summons up this kind of closed or limited environment, okay? And this is a Raphael painting that's called The Madonna of the Chair. She, I think she talks about it in The Discovery of the Child. Um, and here it is, but you can't see it. What a shame. <laughs> Anyway, it's this, why did she want it? Well, it's because you look at the way the mother holds the child with her arms around the child, and it's, um, it's this warm embrace, if you like. So they need an environment that's like the warm embrace of a mother. So they need the family, and then they need this home away from home, that's the Casa dei Bambini, which um, gives a sense of security, it's closed, you know, sense of security um, and the love and the warmth and all the rest of it, right. But the older children are not like that. You think that they want to be in the arms of the mother? No, not at all. So they're the adventurers, really. They're more like, um, well, I like to think of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn who want to skip school and explore the wide world, you know, because... There's so much to find out and all the rest. So they're the find-outers, the adventurers, the ones that would hop into a time vehicle if they actually could, a time machine or, or a space vehicle or whatever. And for that, I have another slide which you can't see, <laughs> which is a picture of the whole world because that's what these children want to explore now. All right? And it's the world in space because even... The world they want to explore is certainly our planet, but it's, that's not enough. Our planet's not enough. We have to see our planet in space because the Earth also has its environment. You cannot understand our planet, but you have to imagine Earth in space, and you cannot understand the phenomena. Of, if you wanted to investigate really deeply, you'd think even the materials of our Earth, you cannot explain what our Earth is made up of in a, in a fundamental sense unless you think of the cosmos, unless you think of the universe. Um, but in a, in a less deep sense, even experiences that little children have had, like day and night and the seasons. I mean, every child from the time it's born experiences day and night and the seasons, right? But um, how can we explain day and night and the seasons just with the earth? There's the Madonna of the chair, the arms that hold the child to give the sense of love and security. And here's the Earth in space. And by the way, this is the painting and collage done by Beaumainet, um, who gave this as a gift to us at the end of her student year to symbolize cosmic education. And we also have a slide of, of the NASA depiction of the Earth. So whichever uh, is fine. We can look at this one. We can look at that one. Or you can imagine the blue planet seen from space, which is our planet, right? Um, and so that's the open environment, and that's what the older children want to explore. And so they're the adventurers, the ones who want to set off on adventures. But so much of what they explore has to be with the mind. But there's another connection that's really interesting between the first plane and the second plane, because so many things that the little children experience from the time they were born 
when they become older, so we're in the going to the place of childhood, it's not there, um, they want to understand it, right? They want to understand it. So, they, so it's no longer experiencing day and night or experiencing the warmth of summer and the cold of winter. It's wanting to understand the why of day and night, that how and the why of day and night, the how and the why of the seasons, the how and why of wind, the how and why of rain, all these things that they experience through their senses, right? Now, you know, they're looking to understand, they're looking for explanations. So they have all these questions, and Mario gives endless examples of questions that the children asked. And this is particularly in India, so it would have already obviously started earlier. But he has many that come from India. So, you know, it's really interesting how we can follow the Montessori's around in these different countries. So now we're in India, which really sees the full flowering of cosmic education, doesn't it? Um, the children are saying things like, oh, um, or they're asking, uh, why a plant screen? Mm. Or um, why are stars so small? And of course, they're not small at all. Or making wrong statements like, the sun is so, is, the sun is small. You know, that's a fabulous one. I have to use that as an example. I know I used it over and over again, but I'll use it yet again. Um, we look at the sun. We can feel the earth around us, can't we? We know that we're on earth. And we can feel that the earth is big, right? And then you look in the sky and the sun looks small. And your senses are telling you, that's what your senses are telling you, that the sun is smaller than the earth. That's the feeling that you have, the sensation. Right? So it took human beings a very, very long time to understand that the sun is much bigger than the earth and that it's not the sun that moves because our senses are telling us that the sun moves, right? That it rises, follow, makes a journey and then sinks. And then there are myths about, you know, Apollo is driving the sun chariot and all those stories that people make up. And that takes forever to people to understand that it's not the sun that's moving, it's us that's moving. So the earth is a million times smaller than the sun. Do our senses tell us that? No. So this is where, with the older children, they have to use what we can refer to as the eyes of the mind. The eyes of the mind, the imagination. Because the eyes of the body don't give them the truth, right? So if, they want, if they're on a quest, for the truth of a much vaster reality, your senses are still important, but your senses are not enough. And sometimes your senses lead you astray, like that there's the sun that's moving, whereas, you know, we with a simple demonstration can show how it's the earth that's actually moving. And it's the movement of the earth that gives us day and night and not the movement of the sun at all. Okay, so you can understand why this is a completely different plane of education that's through observation is totally has evolved in response to the developmental needs of older children right and that can't possibly be offered to a different psychology at, at a different age cosmic education is, is for these children right who are interested in understanding the world understanding how it functions explaining the phenomena that they experience on the earth um, and using their imagination. So we, Montessori says there's a sensitivity for the use of the imagination. Not for the development of the imagination. That's already developed, but for the use of the imagination. And then there's another one that I haven't touched on, but I have to mention, but I won't be able to develop fully, and that's morality. 
So Montessori says that for the six to 12 year olds, there's a sensitivity for morality, right? And that this is the, this is the sensitivity, there's this hunger for knowledge, but then there's this thing of the moral aspect that the, that the teacher, the adult, has to be the most careful with because this is where the children are the most vulnerable and therefore requires the most delicate approach. Right? So that's what's good, what's bad, what's fair, what's not fair, what's just and not just, and so on and so forth. Um, very much, though, in the context of their social relationships, right? So when it's not fair that he has this and I don't, or, you know, um, is it right that mm, they have this and we have to do that, blah, blah. So mm, it's a lot of that. Well, cosmic education is not only an answer to the psychic needs when it comes to the intellect or the mind, though Montessori says that the hungry mind is the great outstanding characteristic of this age, but there's also this moral aspect to cosmic education. And you know what? I'm going to give you a fast quote on that one because that's the easiest thing of all. I'm going to give you this quote. So we know that development is always about work, okay? Children have to work. Think of it as developmental work. Don't think of it as working, you know, like I'm here from nine to five or from eight to six and being paid or something. Think of work as effort. Think of work as being active and effort and using energy and time and so on. And then you understand development is work. And Montessori says what the children put in maximum effort. When they're really doing something to develop themselves, they'll put in maximum effort. Unlike if we just have an external goal and we want to put in minimum effort, you know, why clean the room three times if you can clean it once? I mean, that would be absurd, wouldn't it? Or why, if you need to work out your sums for the bills for the week, why do it ten times, you know, when you can just do it once? So you use minimum effort. You try to find all the ways to... But that's not what you do when you're trying to develop yourself. I mean, if you want to learn a new skill, if you want to learn to drive a car or play a piano, you have to practice and you have to put in effort and you have to do it over and over. And, and so we see repetition and maybe exact repetition or repetition with variety or whatever it is. But repetition is a sign of effort, maximum effort being put in. Concentration is a sign of maximum effort. So when things are right developmentally, those are things that you should be able to observe. So work is going to go on in any plane. If the children are to develop themselves, they have to work. They have to put in the energy. And it's a great mistake to try and save children from effort. I think it's a modern tendency. You know, adults doing things for children all the time. Big mistake. Think that you're actually harming your child because you're actually substituting your own effort for the child's effort. And what, they're going to have you around for the rest of their lives to do things for you. So yeah, it's got nothing to do with becoming independent and looking after yourself. So, all right. So children are always working. The older children are working. That's the normal state of things because you can't develop yourself without effort. And the adolescents are working. So work is always important. But unlike the little children... To understand human society, we want to help the older children to actually reflect on work. Not just work, but actually reflect on work, okay? So we want them to become consciously aware of work because our societies, if you want to understand human society, it's all about work and how we organise work, right? 
And how it's also about how we organize our relationships with each other. We can do certain things and not do other things. But it's also about the organization of work. So it's not just laws, okay, or regulations. It's also actually, if you like, a division of work. But we want the children to think about work. We want them to come to understand the importance of work, the value of work, and that work is undertaken by everything in nature. And this is where we really have to expand our thinking about work. Okay, So there's nothing that exists in the world that doesn't move, that isn't active. And if we can think of movement and activity as having to do with work, then, oh, let's look at our last one, if we can get our last slide up here. No, it's in, you can look at it afterwards. It's in tiny form here. Okay, Where we have a chart of interdependencies. Let me just show you. It's also in this booklet. If you have uh, Mario Montessori's pamphlet, Human Tendencies in Montessori Education, you're familiar with this chart? Are you familiar with this chart? It's a chart of interdependencies. Mario also calls it the unconscious exchange of services. Okay, so this is another way of looking at our world and how it functions. And up here, you have uh, sun, that's off the earth. You have land, you have water. Here, invisible, so you have to imagine it. You have air all around, okay? And there's the non-living world. Then here you have your plants and your animals, and there you have life and also human beings. So these are all aspects of life, right? And the arrows indicate dependency, all right? And so there's all this dependency, which in the end is interdependency, and that's how our world functions. And all of these we can think of as agents of, um, of change, agents of creation. And here, half of the chart is actually devoted to human beings in their different human groups. And what's interesting, of course, is that we always see adults and children. Because when you think in this grand way about work and so on, adult work is different. Normally, it's very different to the child's work, okay? But the child's work is just as important as adult work. So we have to be able to see the children there as well as the work. And it was always Camilo's joke that all of these different human groups, you always see a child except with this European couple, and there's no child there. <laughs> But anyway, never mind. And Megan immediately put in a child. <laughs> so, because she thought that was terrible not to have a child there. Anyway, so functioning of human societies had everything to do with how human societies function, right? And all human groups are now connected, right? So when you look at these kind of circles, right, it's as though we all, all the human group, we have a whole work that explains this, how all the human groups depend on each other. Individuals within a society, any individual depends on other individuals. We cannot feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, or have shelter without the work of others. If you, if you say, everything that I own will disappear if it involves other people's work, and you know, it's not just my work, you have nothing. It's all gone, right? So we totally depend on other individuals for satisfying our needs and being able to survive. We, sat we depend on other human groups, other countries. There's constant import and export of things. So, you know, we're totally, hugely interdependent society. But we can think of work in a vast way. I want to finish this quote. Okay, think about work, the value and importance of all the different forms of work undertaken by all forces of nature, all forces of nature. The sun works, land, water, air, plants, animals, and human beings all work, if we, un if we understand work in a really wide sense. And 
not just the value and importance of work and the fact that work is undertaken by all forms of nature, by forces of nature, by all forms of life, by mankind, both past and present, but also the value and importance of collaboration in work. I just talked about all the interdependency, all right? And also the value and importance of work undertaken for the greater good. Now, for the greater good, it means that um, whether you're aware of it or not, your work benefits others. Your work benefits you, but your work also benefits others. And therefore, we all contribute to the whole. We all contribute to the existence and the life of others. And that part you can think of as cosmic work. Okay? So the more selfish part, I mean, this is putting it a bit strong, but anyway, the more selfish part, the part that benefits me of my work, well, that's not cosmic work. But whatever I do that benefits others, that is a contribution that I'm making to others and to the world at large, if you like, and that's cosmic work. And if the children can come to understand that, then they can develop what I call a cosmic morality. A cosmic morality is one that appreciates the, as I said, I'm going to repeat it, the importance of work, the importance of collaboration and interdependence, and the importance of cosmic work, which means contributing to the whole, contributing to the environment, contributing to the lives of others. And that does, should not conflict with any, mm, with any particular cultural mores or any particular religion. It's such an overarching, such an overarching and large concept of what is moral, but so vital for our planet and ever more vital, it seems to me, for our planet and for our human relationships, that it's only ever more important and less important. If the children can develop this, then the second plane can give a great <laughs> contribution to the kind of adults that we have at the end of development. I have finished. Thank you. <laughs>